Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, Fitch Ratings Lead Sovereign Analyst for China. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Julian Martin, who is based in Hong Kong as Managing Director and Head of Fixed Income and Currency Development for Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited, aka HKEX, and the general manager for the Bond Connect Company Limited. Julian is one of the architects that led to the launch of Bond Connect in July 2017. Prior to joining Hong Kong Exchange, he spent more than a decade between Shanghai and Hong Kong helping to establish BNP Paribas' presence in the mainland China market. Julian, thanks for joining the podcast. It's an honor to have you with us today. Thanks, Andrew, for the warm introduction. I'm uh, very happy to be here to talk about China fixed income market and obviously Bond Connect and all the best. Okay, great. Maybe just to start off, it'd be great to hear about a little bit about your professional background. You know, how did you end up taking roles in Shanghai and Hong Kong with BNP and, and eventually joining HKEX and Bond Connect? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a banker by structure, so I work in banks for more than 20 years. Um, and um, one of my first uh, trip in 98 brought me to Hong Kong, and I literally fell in love with the city and decided that I wanted to bring my career back to here. So after uh, quite a few years in London, I moved to Hong Kong in uh, 2005 and started immediately working on the, on the China fixed income markets and currency markets. After a few years in Hong Kong, it made a lot of sense for me to be down there, in, I mean, up there in Shanghai and really uh, uh, get my hands uh, a lot more uh, into the domestic market evolutions and developments, getting a lot of uh, new activities and businesses started in Shanghai. Once I looked at uh, the impact I could have within a bank in helping my customers, I realized that um, you know, working for an infrastructure provider and making this impact even greater uh, so that's when I decided to join uh, HKEX and uh, and look at this um, this overall ac China access not only for fixing car but across asset classes as something that is really going to be something of absolute importance in the next decades to come. Uh, so I embraced that and basically, you know, joined the infrastructure, which is uh, HKEX uh, in, in 2015. So came back to Hong Kong and and started working on that um, and, and eventually set up Bond Connect after a year and a half of uh, very hard work with the help of uh, Charles Lee and, and all our leaders here. Well, that uh, multi-year expertise on on both the infrastructure and the financial side is precisely why we're uh, so glad to have you here with us today to talk about some of these issues. Maybe just to set the stage, perhaps you could give our listeners a snapshot of China's onshore bond market as it stands today, just for a little bit of context. You know, how big is it? How fast is it growing? And maybe why foreign investors should pay attention to it. Uh, yeah, so the, the domestic market in, in, in China is has uh, already become the, the second largest uh, fixed income market in the world. Uh, by by mid-July uh, 2021, the total outstanding bonds amounted to a little bit less than 121 trillion RMB or uh, 18.7 trillion dollars. It's increased roughly 6% year on year uh, since last year, despite COVID. But if we look at 2012, uh, you know, when a lot of the access into China started, the market size was only 4 trillion US. So this means it has grown fourfold in the last decade. At the same time, the foreign holding in this market has always been pretty grim, very small. 
And now we have reached 3.74 trillion RMB or roughly 600 billion US dollar of holding by foreign investor into the market. It's grown threefold compared to 2017. But I'd say from 2012 to 2017, the domestic market was growing quite extensively. But the overall access from foreign investor into this market was not something that was working so well. Hence the reason we push for the Bond Connect establishment. Now, why why would investors look at China today? Well, obviously, it's the second largest economy in the world, uh, probably on the way to become the first largest economy in the world. The uh, political and economical system does embrace a capital market as a way for uh, raising liquidity and, uh, and providing funding to the economy. So it's already a too big to ignore market. It's not like your usual emerging market. It's the developed market of the emerging market, if you want. The second part is really about yield. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of attraction, especially in the in the recent few years with the uh, you know, QE in, in most of the uh, developed economies. So if you look at the 10-year uh, Treasury, US Treasury, currently at 1.3%, even dropping recently. And now you look at the 10-year Chinese government bonds at close to 3%, 296%. So there's 160 basis point of spread with on top of that a currency that appreciates. The CNY and the CNH have appreciated from 718 in June 2020 to 647 today. So that has also amplified the attractiveness of the RMB assets on top of the absolute yield. Those are some pretty interesting perspectives. And I think even at Fitch and in our publications and in recent months, I mean, one thing that's been notable since COVID is that China has basically eased policy less aggressively than many other markets around the world. So I guess that that does jive well with um, your, your comments about that yield differential. So maybe move on to another question. In recent years, there's been a debate about how quickly economic reforms have been taking place in China. But one area where there's unquestionably been a lot of action has been in the capital markets. Among these reforms, I guess in your mind, what have been the most impact for investors? And maybe more broadly, what do you think the ultimate goal or aim for China's financial regulators is in pursuing these capital market reforms? So I think there's two elements to it. The first one is really there's a belief in the domestic government governing bodies that capital creation is absolutely critical in the continuous development of the economy. So the reliance on a domestic capital market, healthy capital market, both in the equity space or in the fixed income space, is uh, absolutely critical to the growth of the Chinese economy um, and also the growth of the Chinese corporates, their internationalization, and also the ability for the domestic retail to consume more and more. So I think this this is obviously the first element. The second element is there's been a constant drive by the Chinese regulators who are in general extremely well coordinated with the government to drive reforms and to drive changes and to listen to people like me or people like us in HKEX about what kind of regulatory reforms could be happening in order to facilitate the improvements of the domestic capital markets. Because when you let a huge animal like the domestic Chinese equities and fixed income market develop on their own, obviously the local reforms and the local elements to it become sometimes very, very hard to integrate within our globalized capital market world as as we know it. 
But, but the Chinese regulators, whether they are on the CSRC front or on the PBOC, the, the central bank front, have lifted quite a lot of elements into their restrictions. Obviously, they've lifted quotas, which is something that quotas is always something which is very difficult to handle. And I think they've lifted quotas for QFE, RQFE. There are still some restrictions, but overall, this is a very strong relaxation. Overall, they are looking at selective capital account relaxation. So for certain elements of the capital account in China, whilst the current account is already open for many aspects, on the capital account, there are still some restrictions, but they've decided to open certain amount of the capital account and capital markets securities have been at the core of that. And that has proven absolutely tremendously successful. So allowing all those reforms by bringing in international practices is the main element in all our discussions. Every time we have discussion with the Chinese regulators, we come to them and we say, look, this is the kind of practices that exist in the international markets. And we feel that if you implement a little bit more of that, then you'd have a lot healthier domestic market. But that, And then the counterparty to that is also you're going to get a lot more attraction from foreign investors into the market and they will bring liquidity, they will bring capital. You might not immediately need this capital, but that helps you, you know, reprice uh, some of your credit curve, reprice some of your lending curve. And eventually it's, it's critical because China has huge uh, interface with the rest of the world when it comes to trade, when it comes to import and exports, but in financial market, there was a, a strong need for, for reforms there. There's been obviously other reforms around lifting the foreign ownership cap in banks, security firms, fund managements, futures, life insurance companies. For the benefit of uh, rating agencies also, there's been uh, lifting of the ban of uh, international rating agencies settling into China and allowing also greater transparency on the domestic rating system. Overall, I said all those measures did the organization of the Chinese authorities to bolster this two-way opening up of their financial market. At the end, the ultimate goal for all those reforms is one, foster RMB internationalization, make RMB a new asset class, but also an investment assets, also a currency that can be used for China to deal with its friendly neighbors. And eventually, for the sake of the China fixed income market, when we started Bond Connect, the target was really much for us to bring international participation, which is roughly currently at 3.5% to 15%, which is in, in standards, uh, what you see in Korea, what you see in any other developed market. This is relatively standard, but obviously because it's such a big market, it implies a lot of changes and a lot. it, need, it will need a lot of time for global pension funds and global asset managers to really move a lot of their uh, assets into China. Well, I guess since you've already started talking a little bit about um, some of the opening schemes and, and Bond Connect itself, maybe it's a good time for us to squarely pivot on Bond Connect. Maybe you could give our listeners some insight into its origins. What was the obstacle or challenge that China's financial regulators and perhaps market participants like yourselves were trying to solve in launching it? Yeah, so the Bond Connect story wouldn't exist without the Stock Connect story. So Stock Connect is the big brother of Bond Connect. So the idea of the connection through Hong Kong of and the opening of those capital markets through Hong Kong is something that was initiated with Stock Connect. Now, obviously, Bond Connect is eventually extremely different from Stock Connect in many aspects. The truth of the matter is, after working for years and years and years on promoting China fixed income market, whether for 
funding, primary issuances, and also investments. I think a lot of practitioners like I realized that there was elements missing. There were practices that were still extremely difficult to bridge, and there needed to be some fundamental reforms and fundamental changes in the way you were going into China. So when you were dealing with investors out of Europe or issuers out of the US, there was a lack of trust in their ability to actually go into China, open up accounts, leave their cash domestically, leave the securities domestically and think that one way they will see it back. Now, whether they were right or not, because there has been no instances of restriction on any assets that have been or any currencies that have been put in domestically and not being able to be repatriated, whether they were right or not, eventually that was a very strong sentiment. So the whole concept of the Connect model, especially in Bond Connect, was the ability to hold your domestic assets through an offshore structure and also the ability to never have any cash balances or any domestic bond balances technically held in the domestic infrastructure. And so the protection came with the help of the Hong Kong financial system, the rule of law, and the one country to system. So eventually, after month and month and month of discussions and tailoring how, how we wanted to, to set the scheme, we had in 2017 immense happiness to have uh, the Premier Li Keqiang to announce the launch of Bond Connect. And a few months later, we had to go live in on July 1st, which is also the, the national holiday for Hong Kong, the national day for Hong Kong. So we started this uh, joint venture between Hong Kong Exchange and the domestic uh, infrastructure under PBOC called CFETS. And this infrastructure was eventually going to be helping accessing this uh, this market. So Bond Connect Company Limited was set in June 2017 and Bond Connect was launched in, in, in July 2017. Now, we had years of... Uh, of improvements. We started small, we started with a good idea, we embraced technology, which is also very important because we immediately moved the entire trading activity in electronic format. And also eventually we just pushed for the right bridge because this is really a bridge. Uh, this is a way for accessing China like any other market, whether you are trading, whether you're an asset manager or pension fund or banks or an investment banker, and you're sitting in front of your desk and you, you want to buy JGBs, US treasuries or CGBs, the idea was for you to trade them exactly the same way. So if you want to rebalance a portfolio from one to the other, we want you to trade it the same way. So that's, that's if you want, the, the genesis of Bond Connect. Obviously, it took a, a lot of work and a lot of efforts, but the, the rewards is just immense. Maybe just a follow-up question is, I know that there have been many other schemes to access the onshore bond market. So if you had to describe in a few sentences what the key difference is, what did you achieve in Bond Connect that these other mechanisms do not have? Yeah, so obviously the first few elements is really to keep your money and your asset holding offshore secured by the Hong Kong rule of law. That is the probably the most important part. So in, in a nutshell, you have the ability to purchase your assets through a bridge or a tunnel. And as soon as you sell your assets or you receive your coupons, everything comes back through this tunnel and always come back into your offshore accounts. The other one is really, for me, Bond Connect is really the, 
the huge first step, I'd say the second step of RMB internationalization, because the first step of RMB internationalization was about CNH creation, so offshore RMB creation. This was about CNY, i.e. the domestic CNY assets and the domestic CNY currencies to actually be accessible in any countries of the world. And that, that leads to my third point, which is really the multi-layer custodian structure, meaning anybody who has their custodians in Boston, in Brazil, in Switzerland, in Japan, actually have their accounts with their CGB holdings, with their policy financial bank holding in those countries and their currency accounts as well in those countries. And that is secured by the whole nominee holding structure that we've put in place between the Hong Kong infrastructure and the China infrastructure. These are the three core elements that have defined Bond Connect. Obviously, we needed to fix a few other points. The first one was really onboarding. China is an IDID market, meaning a lot of uh, global regulators dream of having the kind of infrastructure you have in China where everything trades and it is registered in one and single entity and every single investor is actually ID'd so that there's no hidden trades. So the whole onboarding before Bond Connect existed could take months, could take even sometimes years, half a year for people to sign all the legal agreements with the domestic counterparties and open up their domestic accounts, cash accounts in the different CSDs domestically and all of that. That could take month and month and month. The minute we started Bone Connect, we said, well, this is a process we can't do without because this is a practice in the domestic market. We're going to cut it down to a few weeks. And we've managed to do that. Now we have people even onboarding in two or three days. We've cut it from six months to eventually a few days or a couple of weeks for the worst case scenario. The second part is really about trading, uh, transparency, you know, liquidity, pricing, liquidity, price discovery. Going electronic for us and teaming up with international trading platforms and obviously also the domestic trading venue allowed us to create this environment where price discovery and on-screen on liquidity, ability to trade those RFQs, those blocks, even now the least portfolio trading for asset managers, the rebalancing of your portfolios, everything is automated. So we have, we have thrived to really embrace probably not the latest technology, but at least a technology which, is, which didn't happen when you were using QFI, RQFI or CIBM agent model before because you need to rely on the broker domestically to execute your orders. Sometimes some investors were leaving their orders overnight with price. I mean, this is a big market. This is a volatile market. The price movement can be there. If you have no ability to actually execute when the market is open on real time in RFQ model or with a real price discovery, this is really going to be uh, extremely difficult for us. The third part we felt was also critical to improve. A lot of investors were complaining about pre-funding, liquidity access into currencies, especially CNY or CNH, and overall the the, the complexity of having to send money cross border. So we teamed up again with the PBOC and the payment system, which is uh, an equivalent to SWIFT. It's called CIPS. And we automated all those payments by leveraging against Hong Kong financial infrastructure payment system and plugging into the domestic market. And that allowed us to really facilitate those payments. Also, 
split out the fixed income trade from the currency trade, which was something which eventually when you were using QFI or QFI before, you had you just left an order with your agent and you just pray that it goes well. So the fact we have you know allowed this transparency and eventually we look at it with a lot of pride because a lot of the old schemes that existed before eventually embraced what we have done. So now you can do RFQs on some of the other schemes and no longer have this kind of agency access. We've really made China access easy and we have wanted to develop this whole approach as a developed market approach. Again, trade all your currencies, all your assets in one place. And we have embraced probably the most advanced technology in the fixed income market as it is with a view that we felt there was no other option. There can't be a voice trade. There has to be electronic. Well, thank you for that very extensive tutorial. I think I'm probably going to have to, uh, after we release this, I'm going to have to listen to it a few times because it's the first time I've been engaged in a conversation with someone about Bond Connect where I've really got the minutia of the obstacles you're trying to overcome and the technology obstacle and the voice trading and all that. So thank you. Maybe just to bring it back a little bit now, now that it's been in existence for four years, could you give us some perspectives on the kind of flows that you're seeing now through the Bond Connect mechanism? We are now in June. We've gone beyond 30 billion RMB daily trading volume. That implies that through the Bond Connect scheme, there's uh, 30 billion of buys and sells that happens during the day. We've reached an all-time high of 49.61 billion, so very shy of 50 billion RMB, so close to 7.6 billion US in a single day on, on 21st of April 2021. We've just gone one way, meaning it's been breaking records after records, and every month you just see growth and growth and growth, you know, 20, 30% growth per year. So I'd say there's been a very healthy activity. It's been growing really all across the spectrum, whether it's from banks, from asset managers, from pension funds, from security firms. We are an institutional market compared to Stock Connect, so it means we only deal with institutional investors, but we've seen across the globe and across the spectrum of type of investors, constant growth. I was going to say, is it is it mostly government bonds at this stage? Is there credit bonds that are being traded? I'd be keen to hear a little bit about um, what sure. people are trading. So in terms of type of bonds, uh, the majority of the trading activities are centered around policy financial bonds. So the bonds issued by the three Chinese policy banks, China Development Banks being the biggest, China Exim Bank and Agricultural Development Bank of China. These banks are quasi-supranational entities. In real terms, actually, we see more trading from China Development Bank bonds than from CGBs. Maybe I'll come back to that. But uh, so PFBs, policy financial banks, uh, represent 44% of our trades. CGBs, 34% of our trades. And the other very important instrument for us are the NCDs, the Negotiated Certificate of Deposits, which are fundamentally bonds-linked deposits issued by Chinese banks domestically, and they represent 18%. Where we have a little bit of, uh, I'd say, next step growth is really, be, is really going to be on credit. Right now, credit and corporate bonds are, if you take out NCD, which is technically considered credit, uh, the real corporate bonds represent less than 1%. And the other point I just also want to raise is China is a huge green bond market, one of the largest, and it's actually the largest green bond market with its own standards, but still the largest green bond market. And we roughly see one and a half percent of our volume on green bonds as well. 
Why credit bonds are less popular right now? Because first of all, a lot of investors are still learning about the interest rate curve of China. So they are not yet inclined in going into the Chinese credit bonds. The second part is the policy financial bonds actually carry a huge benefit over the CGBs for the simple reason that they have different tax treatment domestically compared to the CGB. So they eventually come up for overseas investors with a yield pickup between 50 to 70 basis points over the CGB curve. And that is only purely because of the tax differential domestically. It's not because they are supposedly carrying those 70 basis points of extra credit risk, if you want, because they have the same kind of national support as CGBs. So a lot of investors tend to go into policy financial bank bonds uh, when they really want to take, I'd say, medium term exposure into China and they're really yield hungry, then they will go into this front. Into this front. That's interesting. That's not what I would have guessed. I would have thought there'd been a sort of modest yield pickup on the policy banks just because it, most people view it as effectively sovereign credit quality. But you're saying that there's a effectively a tax treatment issue that, that gives enhancement. Is that going to be around indefinitely? Uh, is that At the moment, all offshore investors who are investing into Chinese bonds in China are not subject to pay any, any withholding tax. That was put in place at the beginning of Bond Connect in uh, 2017. So we are looking forward to a, a renewal very soon in, in September. As a result, domestic investors, when they are within China and they buy those bonds, are actually they will have to pay withholding tax on PFBs when they won't have to pay withholding tax on CGBs. So that's why you get this extra yield for the domestic market. Remember, the domestic market still represents 95% of the actual holding and trading. So offshore investors are only between 3 to 5 5% in terms of trading and holding. So as a result, the impact of the onshore investor coming into this market, and, and this it's not really a tax arbitrage, but it's more like a tax differential, doesn't really get impacted so much. Mm, interesting. If you might say a few words about the foreign investor base, I mean, is it broad-based? Are you seeing concentrations in certain parts of the world? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is the fundamental difference between Bond Connect and Stock Connect. So in Bond Connect, really, we operate in uh, all the jurisdictions. Uh, so we rely on Hong Kong rule of law, but deep down, we actually operate trades from uh, currently 36 different global jurisdictions. Uh, we've recently added South Africa, Brazil, and Norway. If we look at the top jurisdictions in terms of trading, Hong Kong is the largest also because there's a lot of centralized trading around China and a lot of knowledge here uh, with 33% of the trading. U.S. is the second largest trading hub for us. Uh, so it means people physically based in the U.S. trade China for 15% of our trades. And uh, Europe is 12% with the uh, U.K. And, and France and Germany uh, representing those 12%. But when we look at the amount of investors actually registered, the largest amount of investors are in the U.S., for us. So we have recently expanded trading hours, allowing people to trade up to 8 p.m. Beijing time. I hope we can go beyond that. We went from 4.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. It took a little bit of while for this uh, 4.30 to 8 p.m. time to start seeing some trading. But now it's already representing 10 to 15 percent of our trading. And I think there's room for going beyond and eventually covering a little, a little bit more of the U.S. time zone. Maybe one major piece of news that's been developing for years now is China's ongoing inclusion in a number of major bond indices. My impression, looking at the balance of payments data and 
recent years has been that this has been a key factor in in propelling a lot of domestic foreign inflows. Maybe it'd be good to get your own take on this. You know, how important a development has this been for the growth of the Bond Connect, and how do you see this dynamic evolving going forwards? So as of today, we have three major indices that have included China in their core index. So we've got Bloomberg Barclays Global Aggregate, which phased it over 20 months from April 1st, 2019. JP Morgan GBI EM, which is phased it over 10 months, starting from Feb 28, 2020. And FTSE Week B, uh, which is going to be effective from the 29th of October 2021, so coming very soon, and phased over over 36 months. Now, these are huge wins. I won't lie. They were our, our raison d'etre, our targets when we launched Bond Connect. We knew that the phase one of this whole China access needed to be about embracing those index inclusion. They have been instrumental in convincing customers, uh, clients all across the globe to who are benchmarking or we are passively following these indices to actually come and, and register and start trading and learn more about the market. So if you want, they've been absolutely great triggers. And we've seen every time we've had one of those announcements, the onboarding team and the team that has been dealing with the uh, admission into the scheme has been the busiest for months getting more and more accounts in there. But in terms of actual real inflow so far, the impact has been relatively small. We will be seeing more and more rebalancing, even though China represents between 5 and 6% in the Bloomberg Barclays and the FTSE index uh, and 10% in the uh, JP Morgan GBI. Uh, I think there are still a lot of flows that need to come in from pension funds and asset managers. We expect the FTSE week B will have an even bigger impact than the two first in inclusion. So starting from October this year, we are going to see a lot of Northern American accounts, a lot of uh, Northern European pension funds, a lot of Japanese accounts who are also lining up to register with us uh, will be getting into, into the China fixed income market in order to follow those benchmarks. And they will be reward big again because they will be, you know, they will, if they don't do it, they will really be struggling with vis-a-vis -vis their, their benchmarks. So I think it's, it's absolutely critical. Before you go, I have... Two questions for you about market development challenges. And the first one is liquidity. I guess if I take a step back, one reason why U.S. Treasuries are viewed around the world as a risk-free asset is because of how deep and liquid this market is. Generally speaking, how would you characterize the liquidity of China's bond markets today? And if there is room for improvement, what areas do you think or what reforms do you think might help in this regard? So there are several indicators to measure the liquidity of a market, the market size, the trading volume, the turnover. One of the important indicators of the secondary market, the turnover rate, will allow us to better evaluate the flexibility of price discovery and characterize the liquidity of a market. So if you look at the stats, by the end of 2019, the turnover of U.S. Treasury is at 8.98, and that of China government bond is only 2.1. Obviously, you have to put that in perspective that USD is still the largest asset class and the largest currency in the world. And Chinese yuan is still a relatively small country currency in the grand scheme of things. The foreign holding of US treasuries represents 40%. At the CGB only is around a little bit shy of 10%. So by far, the Chinese sovereign bonds are still less liquid than the US treasuries. However, the spread between this liquidity and uh, USD versus CGB 
turnover ratios have been tightening since in 2019 in particular. So if we look at the spread, it has been tightening from 10.5 in 2021 to 6.88 in 2019. So if we observe this data, uh, the liquidity of the Chinese treasury is constantly improving. And we've made conscious efforts in liaison with the Ministry of Finance in China and with the PBOC to make that happen. There were lots of uh, working groups working on that. People in the FTSE Russell Index Group also gave us a lot of insights. So expanding the scale, the issuance scale of government bonds and issue more medium and long-term products is something that has been done. First, uh, further boost you know, the access and having more and more people coming and trade is also something we've definitely done. And also encourage more foreign participation is just going to change that. So it's definitely not the liquidity of U.S. Treasury, but it is a very, very liquid market, which trades within uh, 0.5 basis point a bit of a spread on the run bond. So you can't consider this as an emerging market anymore. This is really trading like a large asset market. It's not U.S. Treasuries but it is very liquid. You can get in and out of your position very easily. And remember, we do all of that electronically. You have access to primary market. We develop new tools for access to primary market as well, which is going to be also critical. So I guess if I summarize what you're saying is it's, it's far from as liquid as a U.S. Treasury market, but it's becoming more liquid over time. And perhaps I'll just uh, go on a limb here. What you're saying is that liquidity is not a deterrent for any investors because it's, it's liquid enough. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's correct. If you look at the size of the tickets we see happening, if we look at the bid offer spread on the market and the kind of order book we see on screen, this is a very liquid market. But nothing can compare with U.S. Treasury. So if you compare it to U.S. Treasury, it's still relatively illiquid. If you compare it to any other less smaller size Garvey's market, it's going to be equally liquid. Well, Julian, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Andrew, thanks a lot. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care and until next time.